Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 41. Exploring Microanimism with Dr. Siv Watkins. In this episode, we explore the wide, gigantic world of the smallest organisms with Siv. How to interact with what she calls the smalls as people, while remembering that they are way different than us humans. Though, we explore how we actually are mostly made up of bacteria and viruses and all sorts of other microbes. And the line between self and other, between microcosm and macrocosm, is very fine, if it even exists. We also talk about horses and about her course, Thinking Like a Plague. As always, you can support us at patreon.com slash plantcunning. And here's a big thank you to all of our patrons. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, Dr. Siv Watkins. Siv Watkins, or Shiv Watkins, however you, you like to be called. <laughs> and he's fine. Like I said, I'm Legion. That's okay. I'm good with that. Okay. Well, how are you today? So far, so good. It's... um hot outside in New Mexico and it's smoky and there's allergens everywhere but I'm also looking out the window at a horse so life is good yeah good that's great there's always a mix of good and bad right (laughs) yep good old duality (laughs) so uh you're a my, a classically trained microbiologist, as well as a spiritual practitioner and an educator. Um, how did you get into uh, the, the microbial world and decide to study it, uh, you know, rigorously? <laughs> um, accident, which is incidentally the same answer for every other question about how I got into any aspect of my career. It's, <laughs> it just sort of happened. Um, and as I look back on my career now, the sort of science with a capital S part of it, um, and I'm 37 now, I look back on my childhood and realize that I was a microbiologist at a very, very early age. And I think a lot of people can do that. Um, but I had an aptitude for academics at school that I probably uh, wasn't as responsible with as I should have been, but I just kind of um, fell into university or college and um, picked biochemistry as a first degree because it was interesting. And then I did microbiology as a second degree because that was interesting too. And then I got an opportunity sort of tangentially to do a PhD. So I did a PhD and then I ended up doing a bunch of research Um, jobs and I accidentally became a college professor and so I left that job about two years ago so I went through I went through the academic system quite um, typically you know nothing sort of exciting or untoward encouraged that but now as I say I look back on it and I realize that it was probably all in alignment with something somehow um, for sure yeah, so was was uh, the spiritual side, was that all an accident too, or mm. at it? Yeah, it, I, so I, um, I moved to the States when I was 30, and up until that point, I had no tendencies that I was aware of, at least towards um, esotericism or spirituality or or whatever you want to call it and actually before then I was a bit of an asshole about it and I was very very much bought into the idea of scientism that you know science is the be all and and end all of everything and if you don't have data to back something up then it can't be a thing and, and all that sort of thing and then I moved to the states and 
I, I guess you could call it a kind of dark night of the soul for a few years where I was really just confronted with a lot of, um, I guess, aftershocks of the trauma that I had growing up and, and all that kind of stuff. And eventually at the end of it, I came out and realized, no, I'm... <laughs> I am definitely in alignment with the, the ineffables and the spookier side of life and I'm definitely an animist and I have to really get a handle on that now because it's kind of kept me alive from infancy up until this point and I got to honor it and and take ownership of it now so it was it wasn't so much an accident as a kind of uh, spiritual baseball back to the head or something it was I got to a point in my life where I had to interact with that side of myself otherwise I wasn't going to get much further and so before we go too much further what does animism mean to you mm. so animism is there's also kind of different flavors associated with that word there's a, a kind of scholarly definition of what animism is and my favorite one always comes from Professor Graham Harvey, which is this idea that you can have relationships with things that aren't necessarily human and things that aren't necessarily alive, according to science. So you could have a relationship with a pet or a rock or a Boeing 737. And um, if you can relate to something in that way, then the chances are it's an alive person. And then there's sort of the more less scholarly, more practical sort of um, earth-centered dirt worshipy aspect of that, which is how you develop and maintain these relationships day in day-to-day -day life. Uh, if, you, if you enjoy being in the garden and you, you enjoy growing plants, you probably have a relationship with a plant. And maybe if you've dug a bit deeper in a, in a spiritual um, pathway or system, you might have plant allies that you journey with, things like that. So there's the, the kind of very formal, very structured definition of what animism is. And then there's the kind of very human experiential um, definition of what animism is. And I guess I, I probably, my work with microanimism probably falls into both of those categories, but in my day-to-day -day life, I would definitely classify myself as somebody who incorporates animism in everything that they do. It's just a part of who I am now. Yeah, that makes sense. So also to define terms, which we like to do and just get everyone speaking the same language, um, what are microbes? Uh, like are bacteria and viruses the only kinds of microbes? Are fungi microbes? Are there other entities that are that are considered microbes to you? Good question. Yeah, the, the word microbe, which is sort of interchangeable with microorganism, um, and I sort of casually refer to that whole group of folk as the smalls. Um, that word microbe is usually used to describe anything that's microscopic, right? And like you say, that includes bacteria and viruses, but it can also include the fungi, it can also include prions, um, some parasites that may be multicellular, like actually lots of multicellular things that fall within the remit of microbes. Um, so it's a very complex, diverse and varied group and microbe is a sort of capsule well word for, for all of those guys. But um, a lot of the time, academically speaking, microbiologists will use the term microbe to refer to bacteria, archaea, and viruses. So for those of us who are, may have heard of the, the word archaea, you know, many years ago, but aren't so fresh on it. What, 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 what are those three kingdoms? Right, well, it's like you say, there are um, different kingdoms of life, essentially. Um, so there's a lot of crossover between all of them. And that's part of what we look at with microanimism. Bacteria have lots of different characteristics that sometimes can make them more of a crossover into the world of the archaea and the archaea are 
I mean, we don't know very much about bacteria and viruses. Archaea, we know even less about. So they're very, very ancient organisms and they're, they're defined on the basis, for the most part, of um, according to their physiology and according to their molecular biology. But kind of to oversimplify it, they're a group of beings that do really gnarly things that speak to a very, very ancient background, things like living in volcanoes and eating methane and, and stuff like that. Um, wow. So yeah, there are these kind of like, humans do this really cute thing where they like to delineate between groups of microbes and put them on the tree of life. Uh, but in reality, when you start taking a closer look, there's a lot of crossover and it becomes a lot more difficult to decide whether or not things even belong on the tree of life, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so do scientists consider these beings alive even? Yeah, um, lots of microbes uh, fall into these these nice little definitions of what counts as being alive. <laughs> um, you know, you have to excrete stuff and you have to eat stuff and you grow and all that kind of thing. A, a really obvious outlier, uh, the viruses, um, because viruses are obligate cellular parasites. They can't do anything without a host cell. Mm. Um, so one side of the argument is that viruses are not technically alive because they can't do anything on their own. The other side of the argument is that viruses have such a obvious, tangible and um, almost aggressive impact on the living world as we understand it. They probably belong in the center of the tree of life. Um, <laughs> So yeah, there's lots of juicy discussions about that, particularly over the last couple of years when people have really started to think a lot more about the impact that viruses have on human beings, not to make it too human-centric. But um, yeah, there's a, a lot more to being alive than just being able to poop, you know? <laughs> right. Well, they can learn, can't they? Viruses, uh, I mean, in theory, you could say that, yeah, through a process of mutation and evolution, that they have a, a capacity to learn. Um, and that's the same with every living thing. You know, mutation is the spice of life. Mutation is what drives everything and everything mutates. So there's that. So are they conscious? <laughs> Just to keep going down this train. No, this is a good train. This is like... Um, definitely a microanimism train and I just like preface this by saying that I, I just sort of warn my students a lot that this platform microanimism is just really a collection of unfinished thoughts so if you get far enough down this road of talking about viral consciousness and viral morality eventually going to hit a dead end and we're all just going to be sat here going I don't know but um <laughs> yeah there's a lot of questions yeah. yeah it's a fun journey you know to get to that point but um it's in order to sort of explore that question do viruses have a consciousness you got to kind of sit for a minute with what your idea of consciousness is you yeah. know because you need a baseline really and it's also totally okay for everybody to have a different version of that and to end up with a different answer to this question. I think um, one of the ways that I approach this is I'm, I'm just not able to think about the smalls as separate entities. So when I when I think about bacteria or when I'm, I'm thinking about a, a sort of very specific kind of scenario within the microbial world, I'm not able to just focus on one member of that world. Um, I'm not able to just focus on kind of one, one flavor of microbe either. And it's probably a product of the fact that I've been trained as a microbiologist for 18 years. But when I think about viruses and viral consciousness, I can't sort of, um, I can't separate viruses from everything else. It's really, really hard for me to do that. And I also can't separate viruses spatially, but also temporally. 
um, viruses are incredibly, incredibly ancient. And whether they have what we want to call consciousness or not, they've been around for a really, really, really long time. So as um, an overall group, an overall sort of hive of beings, whether or not it's consciousness per se, every single virus on the planet has an ancestral connection to a very, very, very um, expansive, extensive lineage. And that in of itself kind of confers a type of wisdom, you know, that humans don't really have access to because in comparison, we've been around for a blink of an eye. So whereas it's not necessarily consciousness as we might as human beings define it, you know, the ability to make decisions because we're driven by some sort of motivation or some sort of morality. Maybe it's not necessarily that, but there is, um, you know, this kind of this wisdom that's been dragged up since the beginning of times that all viruses nowadays have access to just by virtue of the fact that they're viruses. So it gets really squirrely, really, really quickly. But um, and is that overwhelming as a human to who who taps into the sort of consciousness of these ancient beings? Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, like I'm just perpetually confused by everything, and it's like. <laughs> It's um, it's really, really challenging work, and it's also um, really edgy and intense. And one of the first things that I talk to people about if they take one of my courses or if they're doing some sort of like guided session with me, is creating an awareness of when it's just too much for your nervous system. You know, when it's when you're getting to a point where you feel like you're kind of losing your grip on what is safe, what is not safe, what makes sense, what doesn't, because it's important to remember and realize that while the smalls are quite generous and, and they're willing to interact and, and in some cases, you know, they may even want to have a relationship with us, there's an awful lot of stuff that they do that's just none of our business and way above our pay grade and, and not even sort of comprehensible to us to our human brains so yeah when I first started engaging with this work I was I moved forward very very gingerly because it because it is overwhelming and I don't know if my training as a microbiologist has kind of helped with that or just in enhanced that sense of oh no <laughs> what am I doing <laughs> And it's, it's one of the reasons why at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of folks got in touch with me and, and said, you know, what can I what can I do? How can I interact with the SARS-CoV-2 virus? What can I offer it on my altar? All this kind of thing. And my response is always, don't. Like, don't try it and talk to this one. Don't offer uh, it anything. It, okay. Like, it's above your pay grade. And it doesn't want to eat anything apart from you, you know? Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. That actually does bring me to a question. Like, you know, if someone has, for instance, like a, a bacterial infection or something like that, would it, it would probably be a bad idea to make offerings to that spirit, right? It would be like, what would you, how would you interact with a spirit like that? Is there a way to interact with, with that um, in a beneficial way? Yeah, there, there is, and it, it's probably not feeding it. Um, and it, it's also a deeply personal thing, right? So I've, I've worked with quite a few folks who are um, dealing with some sort of chronic uh, relationship with a pathogen, maybe it's Lyme disease, maybe um, they're HIV positive, something like that. Um, and the desire to kind of reframe their relationship with that one has has brought them to me and it's very it's a challenging relationship and a lot of the time I can't really say much about it other than sort of guide them through it because who am I to give advice to somebody who is HIV positive about their relationship with that one it's a relationship I don't have any experience with 
Um, but in terms of acute infections, I sort of compared it before to, you know, if you invite people around for a roast chicken dinner and then you go to your altar beforehand and you like feed salmonella and you say, hey, salmonella, here's some food. Please don't give everybody in my house salmonella. It's like, well, then you've just sort of like waved at salmonella and gone, hey, we're over here kind of a thing. Oh, geez, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like opening that door. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's deeply personal. And, and so what I encourage people to do rather than just sort of like stand up and wave their hands in front of whichever one might be causing an infection is to start off by observing what's going on within themselves and to just kind of sit on the periphery of what's happening there and you might not even ever get a sense of that microbe that's interacting with your body but what you might get is a sense of how your body's responding to it and that could be valuable information i would never recommend to anybody that they kind of drop in on some sort of journey with an infectious organism and be like, hey, get out of my body, you know, like you're not welcome here. There's a really strong impulsion to do that because it's an invasion, right? It's a non-consensual invasion, but it's, it's also an entirely natural process, an entirely natural thing that happens. And I, I have a student who, um, I don't think she'd mind me talking about this, who one of her animals was unwell and, and had developed an infection. And she sort of stepped towards that within a, um, a meditative area and stepped towards the infection, what was going on with her animal. And the sense that she got from it was so overwhel overwhelmingly kind of dark and edgy and unpleasant and intense that she just immediately stepped away from it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that sense is immediate and sometimes it's different. So it's very, very situation dependent, but always, always, you know, whatever people decide to do is best for them. And it's the same with any type of ritual animism or practical animism. You, you need to go in with a sense of etiquette and a sense of politeness rather than a sense of like, this is what I want and we're not leaving here until I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So rather than like banishing it and trying to be in control of the situation, um, you're more like inquisitive and checking out what's happening and trying to restore balance in like a more gradual way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's really good advice. So, um, to go back a little bit, uh, it's really intriguing to me when looking at the smalls and looking at the human body, um, what the idea, what the, what the, what identity is, mm. you know, like, so there's kind of two questions here. And one is when you interact with the smalls, where is the locus of their identity? Like what, like, what are you acting, acting with, with whom are you interacting? Is it like a swarm mm. is, are they discrete individuals? Um, that's the first question. We come to the second question a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. Like my really unhelpful answer is all of the above, you know, they're, they're everything, right? Microbial life is the foundation for everything on this planet. Um, so where do you begin? And that's a really, really good question. And, um, the answer is, is quite similar to, again, any type of sort of animist, framed stepping forward i don't know if that sentence made sense but hopefully it was illustrative enough to get my point across um you start with a place that you're already familiar with right um so if you have a particular affinity to a river you can start there because if you've already developed a relationship with the river um, you kind of got an in, you know, you can go to the river and say, okay, river, I'm interested in interacting with the world of the smalls. Could you make an introduction to your smalls? Um, and I always encourage people to go towards the community of the smalls because the world is so complex and complicated. It, eventually you could speak to an individual bacterium or an individual um, virus, I guess, but 
that's quite challenging, that's quite tricky. And it, it's also sort of an exercise in futility almost because those individuals are so deeply linked to their community. It, it, it's almost as if they're just gonna refer you up the management chain anyway, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> so you can start there like with a river or a plant or a mountain or, or whatever. And if, for example, you have no allies or, or previous connections, um, you can start with your ancestors because our ancestors had very, um, deep, meaningful, valuable links to lots of different types of microbes, um, whether it's through agriculture or through making bread or fermentation, something like that. That's a good place to start too. If you have a strong um, practice in ancestral reverence or a connection with one of your ancestors, they're a good introduction as well. And if you don't have any of that stuff, you don't have any of those links, you can just start with yourself, right? There's a very, very fuzzy space between where your human self kind of ends and the microbial community within and on and around you begins. And it's very daunting and um, it, you have to take sort of a lot of incremental steps but you can introduce your human self to your microbial self um, in a different way. And that's also a good place to start as well. And it's, it's accessible to everybody. It's not challenging and you need never really, really consciously reach out to a bacterium or a, a, a fungal person because um, that crossover is so deeply ingrained and it's a, a parallel universe that you've lived with for your whole life. You're just reaching out to it in a, in a different way. Does that make sense? So that actually brings me right to my second question. Um, I, I heard, you know, and I don't know if this was like a Facebook meme or what, but like maybe it was in a lecture by a, a permaculturist. Um, but they said that up to 90% of the DNA or the cells in your body are not human. They're bacterial or, or viral or some, some microbes um, that are not human. And so like, where do you begin and where do you end? Where is the line between the, the human self and the bacterial self? And is that true? Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something along those lines. I'd be sort of in the scientific world, that number seems to change an awful lot. Like when I was a little baby student, it was different, but yeah, the vast majority of you sort of DNA speaking is, is bacterial and also cellularly speaking too, like an, an awful lot of your um, dry weight is bacterial. Um, and it's a really good question and I don't have an easy answer to it. And um, a little while ago, a couple of years ago now, I guess, when I was just really starting to make this platform public, I, I did a little online interview with one of my teachers, Daniel Four, and we started talking about this and he had to stop for a little while because he got a little bit freaked out about thinking <laughs> about how much of him was microbial. Um, because it is strange, it's a strange feeling. It makes you feel really weird when you start talking about this because it's not just that, like you say, it's not just that bacteria kind of live in our noses and on the surface of our skin. And it's not just that there's a microbial cloud that follows us around everywhere. It's how much of us physiologically that is dependent on um, the activity of microbes. Like there's huge parts of our immune system, for example, that um, and the, the gut brain axis, all different aspects of our body that are really highly dependent on the types of microbes that colonize us. And aside from that sort of very spatial, very physiological, tangible aspect of our relationship with them, we have a very deep ancestral connection to them as well in terms of the microbes that we inherit from our mother and our grandmothers and in terms of 
our mitochondria and where they came from, evolutionarily speaking, and in terms of how much of the human genome is viral in origin, it's, um, it, it gets very murky very, very quickly. And so I don't know where the line between us and the microbial world is. I do know that you can take this information and you can feel really odd and kind of uncomfortable and sort of violated about it, or you can take it and explore it and kind of step towards it and create a narrative that's very personal to you about where the line is between you and the microbial world. Um, I think that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's very interesting. So um, going along the lines of like Michael Pollan and A Body for Desire, uh, looking at the plant's view from the bacteria's view, are, are we, could we just be like the tools of, of the bacteria and the viruses? Yeah, I don't see why not. Um, I mean, if you talk about reciprocity, there are, depending on what mood you're in, if you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic or whatever, there is reciprocity between the microbial world and the human world and human culture as well. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, if you think in an abstract way about the connection between microbes and capitalism or microbes and aggression or microbes and religion, all that kind of stuff. Um, sort of biologically speaking, uh, the the vast majority of relationships we have with the smalls are symbiotic in as much as there's a trade-off of goods and services they do good things for us we do good things for them um and that's all very helpful and then there's obviously parasitic relationships as well and where somebody is harmful to another person blah, 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 blah. um but there is uh, no way that I could entertain the idea that microbes wouldn't be totally fine without us. But part of the reason for that is, is the, the community that I mentioned before, you know, and the complexity and um, complicatedness of how the microbial world interacts with other parts of itself. And I'm not sure, I mean, I don't know, like arguably, when you look at it, look at the nitty gritty of that and, and the interactions between the microbial world and the rest of the world as well, there's, there's no real analog for that that we're aware of in the universe. So I guess if you were gonna say that we're sort of here for the benefit of the microbial world, you'd have to say that every other aspect of the continuum of nature is also here for the benefit of the microbial world because their activities and sensibilities are just so pervasive throughout right. everything, you know? Totally. So for our listeners who might be interested in starting to open up to um, like the spirit of the smalls, how would you recommend getting started in that, in that process in a safe way? How did you do it maybe? Um, yeah, so there's lots and lots of different ways of doing this. And I'm, there's no aspect of any of this work that's dogmatic or in alignment with any kind of particular system or anything like that. It's uh, accessible to everybody, um, including anybody who doesn't have any sort of spiritual belief or system that they subscribe to. And I'm particularly thrilled that um, sciencey scientists who think that this all might be crazy woo that they've been stepping into it as well because it's that accessible but um the system that i belong to is uh it, there's a lot of ritual like quite formal ritual structure involved in that so when i teach people how to drop in with the microbes it's kind of like the absolute basics of that and um it's, it's, it's sort of intuitive, you know, it's about um, being able to set a boundary like uh, around yourself so that protects yourself from anything getting to you that you don't want to, first and foremost. 
being able to hear no from somebody that you're interacting with, right? And being able to say no as well, because if you're if you can't say no, then your yes doesn't mean anything really, you know? Sure. Um, and then also just sort of very fundamental etiquette, um, which is like we discussed before, sort of um, observation, being curious, um, but also um, being polite and not kind of elbowing your way in with any type of expectation or um, entitlement to a relationship because we're not entitled to any type of relationship really apart from arguably with our with our ancestors so that's the basic structure of it and the, the practicalities of that are, are really based in meditation and kind of awareness like stretching your awareness past the point of where it normally is day to day when you're distracted by lots and lots of other things and then making use of any allies that you already have, making use of um, any practice that you already have. And I know a lot of folks incorporate uh, drumming and aromatherapy and things like that with their practice when I teach them, which I don't use. I have no teaching and very little understanding of that. So it's, um, it's not something that you necessarily need formal training in to access this world. It's just a process, I think, and, and a lot of people intuitively understand what that process is. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and, that, and I guess that process also depends on like what your training has been too, because mm -hmm. you could use whatever framework you've been trained in. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. It's um, you know everyone everyone can do it. So it's really about um, creating that safe space of being in a meditative uh, state, but also being protected and having your like spiritual, you know, guides or friends, like, you know, to their, there with you. Um, and then just sort of opening up to it. Yeah. A lot of it is uh, about intention, you know, and just most people, when they step into this will spend a lot of time on the periphery of whatever community it is that they're observing. And they will just observe and they will just be receptive to anything that's coming their way. And eventually people will feel the right time to kind of extend the hand and say, hi, this is me. We haven't been formally introduced, but I'd really like to have a dialogue with you. Um, and then just hear what comes back as a result of that. And yeah, if you're, if you're, um, already engaged with that type of practice it's much much easier because you're less inclined towards the overthinking and the projection that everybody I think experiences oh yeah you know that's such um, a big thing of like people trying to figure out is this in my head or is this a message yeah. coming through yeah no absolutely and it's still that's still something that I wrestle with but a lot of that is probably 20 years of formal education in science as well mm -hmm. um so it's, it's a process, it's a practice, and everybody has their own flavor of microanimism for, for realsies. And everybody, I think the other thing is, is that there's no end point. Like you're, you're never going to uncover all the mysteries of the microbial world and then one day put down your pen and be like, okay, well, that's that covered. Uh, I guess I'll move on to the next thing. It's, um, it's a really challenging, really edgy, sort of lifelong practice but it's also incredibly rewarding depending on what your definition of reward is you know same with same with anything else yeah I actually saw on your Instagram um, page an interesting example that you had of like listening to that gut instinct um, and trying to differentiate between if it was a juniper tree telling you this or if it was in your head and I was wondering if you could share <laughs> that story because it was really interesting yeah, I love that story. That was so, that was really well. It was probably like a couple of years into my practice, and I was just getting this really clear message from this tree in the middle of the desert that it wanted some meat. And I was like, "Well, that's ridiculous, tree." And I went on for like a few weeks, and then I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was like, "I gotta get that tree some meat." And hiked out and sort of took a really nice steak with me, and just 
buried the stake and I was like, okay. And then the tree was like, well, it took you long enough. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just like, that's a really, that was a really civvy story. I've got lots of those. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So good. We don't have that much time left. So I was wondering if we could transition a little bit about to something outside of the microanimism world for a minute and talk about your relationship and love for horses. Oh, yay. yay. <laughs> I just got back from um, a horse farm where we were hosting like a funeral for one of my dear friends. And it was just so healing to go out and pet the horses and like feed them hay treats. And um, I can see like the draw, but I was wondering if you could just speak to how you came to horses and what your relationship is like with them. Yeah. Um, again, it's like, I, f I figured it was an accident, but on, upon reflection and sort of ancestral work I can see that it was more by design than anything else um, when I originally moved to New Mexico I was in southern New Mexico in a job that was really making me incredibly miserable and I just got a wild hair one day and, and was like well I've hiked pretty much all the trails that I can hike near me I wonder what else I can do in the desert and stumbled across this website where you could ride a horse through the desert basically and um I did that one day and I went back every single day and ended up as a, a part-time wrangler at a, a dude ranch in southern New Mexico and was able to work with a lot of horses, spend a lot of time with them and it was wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. I, um, I grew up in an um, a abusive household. Um, my parents are wonderful but that's kind of, it is what it is. And so from infancy, I've always had real problems building relationships with humans. I guess I just don't have some of the wiring that you need to do that. Like it was replaced with other wires for survival and being dependent on yourself and stuff like that. So one of the things that animism taught me is that human beings are built for connections and relationships. They don't necessarily have to be with humans. And one of the most valuable relationships I've found is with horses. Um, and I can't, I can't sort of clearly define why. I think everybody has their thing, right? But um, part of it is sort of the open heartedness aspect of it where you're working with prey animals and their fundamental instinct is for survival and they're huge they're like 1200 pound animals so you can't make them do anything okay? yeah i know a lot of people think that they can but if you're if you're engaging in a, a kind of productive and, and loving and non-violent relationship with horses if they're doing anything that you're asking them to it's because there's an underlying relationship there there's an underlying trust there and uh i just I know where I am with horses. I, I have a couple of horses that I own, whatever that means. And both of them came to me troubled, you know, having suffered a lot at the hands of humans and having every right to just kind of be really mean, uncooperative animals and to not have to put up with anybody's bullshit ever again. But now sort of having spent time with me and built up those relationships they're wonderful wonderful loving sweet animals and they're so generous and giving and they have such a long relationship with humans that's you know ancestral absolutely 100 percent mm. it's um just the most remarkable thing that I think I've I've been able to experience and and there's other aspects too like the athleticism of riding them and the interactions that you have in the desert if you're trail riding things like that it's uh it's very difficult to put into words but um yeah no less impactful because of it and so do you find um a relationship or like crossover between the world of your horses and the world of your um microanimism and scientific work? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it just kind of boils down to that relationship and the things that you yeah. learn from 
different facets of your life. There, you know, there are things that um, I've learned from working with microbes that there's not really any analog with horses. And there are things that I've learned from horses where there's not really analog, any analog with microbes. But when you reflect on those two trains of relationship, you can see where they complement one another. You know, there's, there's some very fundamental principles to how I live my life. And a lot of it boils down to having good character. You know, you can't hide anything from a horse. If you're a bit of a dick, they're going to pick up on it eventually, you know, and they're not going to be interested. And it's the same with microbes, you know, in the lab or whether you're sort of interacting with them in a more um, esoteric way, like everything is laid bare one way or another. And so both of those aspects of my life encourage me to have good character. And that includes working on things like my self-esteem and how I relate to other humans and the service that I do so it's um it's multifaceted but it's very very rich and I'm I'm really grateful for both seams in my life yeah absolutely so I'm wondering you know as a sort of like final thought if you have any um insights on just in general how to seek balance with the microbial world, um, as like people are struggling, you know, we've had the global pandemic and we have like gut floor issues or vaginal floor issues. And it's like, we have this internal world that we have to tend to, as well as this like huge global world. And you mm-hmm. spoke to a little, a little bit throughout this podcast, but do you have any other final like insights and words of advice? Yeah, and I like I don't mean for it to sound flippant or anything like that, but I think um, it's probably like the message is probably don't take it personally. Um, everything that is happening in terms of the pandemic is has been predictable, and it's a a reaction of the continuum of nature to what has been done to it. A lot of the non-consensual environmental changes that humans have made, like pandemics, entirely predictable. The virus is just really good at being a virus. It's Mm -hmm. not got any ill will or intention towards us. It's the arrow, not the archer, you know? And it's the same with our personal microbiomes. Difficulties in that area are a a reaction to other stuff that's going on and adaptation and in some cases those adaptations and reactions are an attempt by the microbiome to to bring stuff back into that dynamic equilibrium and sometimes it's just a kind of oh abandoned ship out of balance yeah you know um and so what you can do is try and figure out what's going on like before you even get anywhere near to the microbiome is to just kind of sit with yourself and think all right what is going on that has led to this happening because you know you can drink all the kombucha in the world that you like but if you have a poor diet and a lot of stress Hmm. and you don't exercise and etc 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 you know the kombucha isn't going to help you catch up with all of that stuff so um there's a lot to be learned from the way that the things that microbes do in the world and to just kind of remember that they don't have morality in the way that humans might apply to them. And if you can listen, then you can learn a lot from them. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially with animism is treating all of these beings as living as people, as living entities, Mm -hmm. but not human. They don't think the way we do. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's, again, it sort of goes back to this idea of politeness, like it's impolite to rob a being of its own agency because of what a human might project onto it. Um, and you can go a long way by remembering that, I think. Yeah. So do you think you could tell us a little bit about your course, um, Thinking Like a Plague? Is that still going on? Or are you, are you going to be doing a, a new, like a, a new iteration of it? Yeah, thinking like a plague is kind of like is an ongoing thing. So <clears throat> in my attempts to build a microanimism empire, which <laughs> is <laughs> you know, slightly facetious, 
I'm offering three courses. So Thinking Like a Plague is the introductory course with a very broad introduction to microbiology and animism and uh, ritual and meditative ways that you can sort of embrace those two worlds. This is kind of like the course where I'm like, oh, so just in case you didn't know, this is why microbes are amazing. So that you can, that's open enrollment. You can do that whenever you like. And then um, the second course in that series starts on September the 4th. And this is where we get really weird with everything. So the first course kind of explains what we know we know and what we know we don't know. And then the second course, we start looking at what we don't know we don't know. And it gets mm. kind of trippy. And then some point next year, I'm going to offer the, the third class in in the series of three and and that's going to be that's going to be really out there so um i'm really proud of all of these courses and i'm really proud of the ways that folks have shown up and done the work and all the the ways that they've sort of pushed through the challenges so it's it's trippy that people are interested in microbial animism i thought i was the only person on the planet who would care about any of this stuff but We've had nearly a hundred people take the first course now, and it's just I'm I'm super proud of it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think this last year, uh, year and a half, has probably also contributed to that too. It's the right time for it. Mm. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, can we find your course information at your website, microanimism.com? Yep, and um. Yeah, Instagram is probably where I'm most active too. And like mostly that's just pictures of my horse, but <laughs> there's news that goes up there as well. Cool. And that's microanimism on Instagram too. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay, excellent. Any other closing thoughts? I don't think so. This Hi. is like, thank you so much for uh, letting me kind of talk your ear off. And now um, oh, it's been great. Anybody who's interested in it and who, you know, doesn't want to take a course, just give me a shout. And I can always chat to people about this stuff quite happily. It's my, it's my absolute heart, this work. So I'll talk to anyone about it. That's really great. Yeah. When you, when a teacher can be available to, yeah. to whoever, I mean, I mean, sometimes, you know, you can't do that, but it's, it's really amazing that you can. Yeah. This was super fascinating. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show today with us at- Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. All right, we'll talk soon then. Bye. Bye.